0: Is faith alone enough to make you a child of God, or is there more to it? Do you have to do or not do certain things, follow certain laws or traditions? These were hot questions for the early church, and they finally had a summit meeting to hash it out. Everyone who was anyone was there. (music) Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. A serious problem was threatening to split the church, so Paul and Barnabas joined the elders and apostles in Jerusalem to talk it through. Let's listen as Dr. Boyce discusses the meeting we now call the First Church Council.
1: Turn with me, if you will, to the 15th chapter of Acts, where we have the account of the first and, by some measures, the greatest council in the history of the Christian Church. One of the hardest things for us to grasp as human beings is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. We always want to add something to it. We want to add our own good works As a matter of fact, I would say that the only doctrine that is even close to it, so far as it's being difficult to understand, is in understanding how works nevertheless fit in after you're converted. But that's not quite so difficult because at that point you're already born again and you have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help you understand it, or even if you don't understand it, at least to lead you in the right direction. But when you're talking about salvation by grace through faith, if you don't understand that, if you're trying to add anything to the work of Christ, well, you're not saved. And at that point, you really have a fatal misunderstanding. Now, we know that is in our own time. People will say, oh, of course you need the grace of God to be saved. None of us can save ourselves but you nevertheless have to add something to it. Some would say you're saved by the work of Christ, but you must be baptized. You're not baptized. You can't be saved. Some people would say, well, yes, you're saved by the work of Christ, but you have to belong to our particular church because our church is the only true church, and there's no salvation outside the church, so unless you belong to our church, you can't be saved. Now, in these early years of the Christian church, the issues were different, but I want you to understand from the very beginning that the principle was exactly the same. Here were people who had grown up in Judaism, had been taught out of the law, and who were greatly attached to all the traditions of the Jews. They thought, and indeed, as we look at it, if we can look at it at all sympathetically, with some justice, that there were certain things that you just had to do if you were to be saved. It is wonderful. These early Jewish Christians would have said that Christ has come. After all, that's what the Jews I've been looking for, for centuries, the Messiah. It was merely a matter of identifying Him when He came. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And it is true, no doubt, they would have said. Profoundly true that Jesus had to die because He was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He, by His death, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And yet they would have said, you cannot be saved without being a Jew. And... The door to that Jewishness is the door of circumcision. Now, this had been building in the church for a long time. More and more Gentiles were responding. And moreover, in the ministry of men such as Paul and Barnabas, and undoubtedly there were others like them, though their stories are not all told in the book of Acts, the gospel was being increasingly presented and increasingly widely presented to Gentiles everywhere, and nobody was saying in these Gentile communities that you first of all, or at least somewhere along the line, had to keep the law of Moses. And how could that be? Because God had revealed himself to Israel. God had first of all called out a people in Abraham, and God had taught Abraham at the very beginning that he had to be circumcised as a sign of his membership in that elect people. How could the Gentiles be saved if they were not circumcised? Now, this chapter tells us what the church did, and it's interesting. It's a great chapter, and what they did is great. I want you to see by the time we get to the end that they really were blessed by God in this council. Now, the thesis, to be argued, is stated very clearly because Luke, the author, wants us to understand precisely what the issue was. You find it twice— matter of fact, the first five verses deal with the thesis, and these verses begin with a statement of it, and then they close with a statement of it. And the thesis of those that were unhappy with the expansion of the gospel of the Gentiles is this, verse 1, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then they had a second statement of it, verse 5, that made it explicit in reference to the Gentiles. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, we have to understand what was involved there. It wasn't a question, you see, the Gentiles could be saved. Everybody knew that. All down through the history of the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who were saved. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, was saved. Naaman, the Syrian, was saved. Ruth, the Moabitess, was saved. Nobody Doubt of that, but you see, in each of these cases, those people were saved either by or at least in conjunction with incorporation into the people of Israel. You might say, well, Naaman the Syrian was an exception. He never moved back to the land and settled there, and that's true. But you remember the story in which he took dirt from Israel and brought it back to his homeland. And whenever he prayed, he knelt down upon Jewish dirt, in other words, approaching the God of Israel as a Jew. You see, that was the point. All these many Gentiles were saved, but they were saved as Jews, and so it wasn't a question of whether or not Gentiles could be saved, but whether they had to become Jews first. And, of course, that's what this matter of circumcision involved. It wasn't just a matter of a single external right. It wasn't just like we would say, well, you have to be baptized to be saved, or... You have to take communion to be saved and have it mean no more than that, a great deal more than that. Be circumcised, meant to be incorporated within the people of Israel, and in conjunction with that, to take upon oneself all the burden of the observance of the law, which the Jew understood to be his divine responsibility. As a matter of fact, Peter makes that clear later on as he begins to talk about it, because he speaks of a yoke being put upon their necks, which he said, speaking of himself and all other Jews, neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. But that's what was involved. So for the Gentiles, first of all, to be circumcised, to be saved, meant that they had to take on all that burden of the law of Israel as the Jews understood it. They had to observe the Jewish feasts. They had to observe the Jewish dietary laws. They had to observe the Pharisaic interpretation of the Decalogue. We know that that had a profound weight in these early days, even among people as enlightened as Peter, because as Paul tells us later on in the book of Galatians, even Peter wavered on it at one point when he was at Antioch and drifted away, somehow not wanting to offend his Jewish brethren, and giving the impression that one had to keep kosher to be a Christian. Now let me say in defense of these men, this circumcision party, because that's what Paul later calls them in Galatians, that it's possible to give these men the benefit of the doubt and say that they were at least honest men. Paul, as he writes about it in Galatians, it would seem is not quite so charitable. He regards this as a heresy, and indeed it is, and those who were advancing it as the subverters of the church, enemies of the church of God, those upon whom he pronounces an anathema. But it is possible to understand that these were honest men, that is, even Christians. They had really believed in Jesus Christ, but they still had their Judaism. And if you had said to them, as we would say to them if we met them today, but don't you understand that Jesus died for all men, they would have said, yes, of course he died for all men. That's what the Messiah of Israel is to do. But then they would have said to us, nevertheless, don't you understand that God has given us the law? They would have been fundamentalists at that point. They would have said to us, don't you believe the Bible? We believe the Bible. We believe God gave a special revelation through Moses, and what God speaks is binding. God said, those who are his people must be circumcised. How can you say if you disobey the command of God at that point, that you're saved. How do you know? They would say to us that you're not operating under a great delusion. You see, when you begin to put it that way, their argument begins to carry some weight. And you begin to say, as many people undoubtedly did here in these early years of the history of the church, perhaps the circumcision party is right Perhaps the Gentiles are not in a full understanding of the gospel. Perhaps they are not saved. Well, there was a great deal at stake. Think what was involved. I make the case for them. That's the case. But listen what follows if that is true. First of all, Paul and Barnabas were false teachers because Paul and Barnabas were arrayed on the other side. Paul and Barnabas said, You do not have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Salvation is by the work of Christ, received by faith alone. Paul was the first to say that you must nevertheless live a righteous life. He said, anybody who says of my gospel, therefore let sin that grace may abound, doesn't understand it at all. A person like that deserves to be condemned. Paul was the first to say that. He would say, as the theologians in the church later formulated, you're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith is going to result in works, good deeds, righteousness, adherence to the moral law of God. Paul was very strong on insisting that nothing, nothing, nothing is a prerequisite to faith. You say, well, you must be circumcised and believe. You must be baptized and believe. You must go to church and believe. You must belong to this denomination and believe. He said that's a false gospel. And at that point, the legalizing party was diametrically opposed. Now you see, if they were right, their understanding, the Old Testament was right. Circumcision was a requirement for Christian people. Then Paul and Barnabas were wrong, and they were not true apostles. And the books that we have in the New Testament from the pen of the Apostle Paul, or false teaching. That's the first conclusion. The second implication is this. If you have to be circumcised to be saved, and that is exactly what they say, then faith is not enough. Let's throw out the Reformation. You cannot say justification by faith alone. Sola fide. That just is not true. Oh, may possess a certain amount of spiritual insight. It may be true that faith is important and that it's valuable to stress that, but it is not true to say that men or women are saved by faith alone because you have to have circumcision. You have to come under the yoke of the Jewish system. You have to take on the burden of the law. And it's only when you do that, even though you may also believe on Jesus Christ, that you find salvation. And then the third implication is this. Not only were Paul and Barnabas false teachers, not only is faith not enough, but thirdly, the Gentiles and all these churches scattered throughout the Gentile world were not, and moreover, as mere Gentiles, could not be saved. They could not be Christians. What was happening out there then in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and Antioch Pisidia and later, as we're going to find, in Macedonia and Athens and in Berea and in Rome and all the way around the world. What was happening then, if this is true? Well, the answer would have to be that a false religion was advancing throughout the known world. I go through that simply to say that this is no mere meeting of Christian people. This is an important council, and the decision that came out of that undoubtedly affected the whole history of the Church of Jesus Christ as we know it. Now the council gets underway in verse 6, and there's a very brief statement. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. I don't know if Luke is deliberately understating what went on, but he is at least presenting a certain public side of it, in contrast to what we know from Paul's letter to the Galatians went on behind the scenes. Or if I could put it this way, if you don't like it, you just make a mental reservation at this point. I'll try to explain why I think this as I go along. Luke was putting the best possible face upon the council. And Paul, who had a point to make in writing to the Galatians, was telling the story as it really was. You see, what Luke apparently doesn't tell us here is that when Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem, Paul took Titus along, a Gentile, as a symbol, an element, an illustration of one who was a Christian but was not circumcised. And when he got there, there were people, important people, who tried to persuade him to compromise at this point. Paul was outraged. Something of his outrage is visible in those first two chapters of Galatians, but Luke doesn't say anything about that here. Now, Paul writes about that in Galatians. He says it was great, great pressure, and he makes a point of it to say, I did not yield for an instant. Because, you see, Paul well understood that if it's a choice between the truth of the gospel and harmony in the church, then we must come down on the side of the gospel. We can live with a certain amount of disharmony. It's it's unfortunate. We don't want it. We try to avoid it when we can, but we can live with it. But we cannot live. We certainly cannot live spiritually without the gospel. And so Paul made it a great point to preserve that. Now, there's one other thing he tells us in Galatians, and that's worth thinking about just a bit. Paul speaks there in a very guarded way to suggest that the pressure he had felt in the matter of Titus came from those he calls the pillars. Now, there's one other thing that Paul tells us in Galatians that Luke does not tell us here in the 15th chapter of Acts. And that is that the pressure came from those that Paul calls the pillars, or, or as he says in another place, they are those who consider themselves to be important. Now, he doesn't say exactly who they are. But almost in the same verse, he mentions Peter and James. I don't want to read too much into that, but I think what Paul is saying is that he was pressured to compromise by the very people who should have been most concerned to uphold the truth of Christianity. Peter, Peter, the rock, James, the Lord's brother, the leader, the chairman, if you will, Of the church council. But Luke doesn't say that. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess, I really think that's what happened, that that went on behind the scenes. But what Luke tells us is not what went on behind the scenes, but what went on in public. And the wonderful thing, I want you to see this, because it really is wonderful, in spite of the fact that these men, if it really was these men, almost gave the gospel away in public. When they had met in council and they had prayed about it and asked for God's blessing, God led them publicly to stand together and to uphold the truth. And it's really wonderful how it happened. There were three of them that spoke, four if you count Paul and Barnabas separately, and the first of those that spoke was Peter. Now, there were a lot of people who had stood up to argue the issue before them. Verse 7 says that it was after much discussion that Peter got up and made his speech. No doubt there were pros and cons, and Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James and the others sat there, and they let them air their positions. And then at last, after a lot of this discussion, Peter got up and he gave his testimony. Now, it's interesting what he said, this same verse, verse 7, brothers, you know that Some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. I find it interesting that Peter was not trying to speak ex-cathedra at this point. One branch of the church regards Peter as the first pope. And what a pope says from his throne, ex-cathedra, is gospel. It's beyond question. The church has to accept it. Peter did not speak that way. He didn't try to pull rank. He didn't say, brothers, you know I'm the first, the most important of the apostles. He didn't do anything of the sort. Instead, he simply began to rehearse what God had done. And it was common knowledge. Everybody knew that. Peter had had his vision down in Joppa while he was on the roof. God had told him not to call unclean anything God had called clean. And then same time that vision had occurred, these men arrived from the house of Cornelius and Peter clearly understood it was God's way of saying that he was to go there and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he did, and they believed. And then, as Peter talks about it, he explains what it is that God had done. This was God's work, not Peter's work. And what God did was to save the Gentiles apart from circumcision. He doesn't use the word, but he does talk About God giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, so that, He says, verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them. You see the conclusion of that. If He made no distinction between us and them, and yet nevertheless gave them the Spirit, then it must follow that the Gentiles, by the decree of God, however we may understand the Old Testament, that the Gentiles, by the decree of God, are saved apart from becoming Jewish people. Then Peter makes a second point, and this is a very important thing for Jews to hear. Peter said, now then, verse 10, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? What a concession, you see. Peter is acknowledging that they themselves, Jews, he was one, had not been able to bear the law of Moses. Well, why was that? It's because, as Peter certainly would have said, if they had gone on to press him, and perhaps he did, this may be merely a condensed version of his testimony, it was because the law was not given for that reason. All the law was given to show... What pleases God, but the law and all its ramifications was given, not that we might attain it perfectly, but that the law might reveal our sin. In other words, to point us to the Savior. And instead of that, the Jews, as Peter says here and as Paul says elsewhere in his letters, entirely missed it, thinking that the law was a burden to be borne, a yoke to be carried as peace By peace, law by law, precept by precept, they worked out their own salvation. And Peter said, look, you Jews, above all, ought to know that that has been a colossal failure. And then notice something else. Notice verse 11. I think that in all the written comments that have come from the mouth of Peter, this is certainly the most gracious of them all. Peter says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. You say, well, why is that so gracious? It is because normally Peter the Jew would have said it the other way around. Peter would have said, we believe that they can be saved by grace through faith just like us. They they can be just like us. But you see, that was the issue. Did they have to become like us or not? And so Peter, in a gracious, marvelous manner, utterly turns it around. He said, we believe that by grace, by grace, we Jews can be saved too, just the way God is saving those Gentiles. You ever think of it that way? Do you ever think when you think about other people, they've got to become like us to be saved? You're probably further from the gospel when you think that way than in any other way. Or do you look at other people and see what God is doing in their lives and say, isn't that wonderful? The only thing that's more wonderful is that I can be saved just like that. I can be saved as they are saved. That's what Peter was saying. I think it was perhaps because of that, and also perhaps because it was so uncharacteristic of Peter. But the next verse says, the whole assembly became silent as they now began to listen to Barnabas and Paul. Now, they were the second group to speak. I put them together because they told their story together. They had traveled together. They experienced the same things, and they had the same theology. I I guess, knowing Paul, that it probably had been very difficult for him to keep quiet. He had a very logical mind. He had a lawyer's mind. He thought like a Roman, probably, because a lot of his education had been that way, even though he knew... The Jewish law, these people at the council weren't thinking that way. They were all thinking in terms of God's acts and deeds, and Paul was thinking logically, and it probably was very difficult for him to sit there and listen to it all. He wanted to jump up, I'm sure, and say, look, you're being inconsistent. But he didn't. He kept quiet. And furthermore, he was a very smart man. When you read Paul's speeches, you understand he always understood his audience. He spoke to the Jews. He spoke as a Jew. When he spoke to the Gentiles, he spoke as a Gentile. And here, you see, he understood, as we would say, how the wind was blowing. What Peter had said is, God worked through me. This is what God did, and who are we to stand against God? So Paul and Barnabas get up, and what they say is virtually the same thing. They don't argue theology at this point. Rather, they tell about all the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. Later, when Paul writes to the Galatians, and the Galatians undoubtedly were in the picture here, Paul says to them, remember all the signs and wonders that God did among you as I preached that gospel. When he argues the truth of his gospel to the Gentiles, he points to the signs and wonders. And when he argues the gospel here, he does precisely the same. God is working, he says. Who are we to stand against God. And then James stands up to preach. James, interestingly enough, was the chairman of the council, not Peter. He seems to have been one of greatest authority, certainly a legalist in his early days, certainly a very rigorous Jew. It comes through even in his letter later on in the New Testament. He didn't think like Paul, wasn't formed by the same kind of cosmopolitan culture that had formed the mind and outlook of the great apostle to the Gentiles. But he stands up and begins to speak, and building on what Peter has said, now he says exactly the same thing. James was also wise. He understood that the people that had to be won over at this point were not the Gentiles. After all, there probably weren't many of them. Titus was there maybe a few others, it wasn't the Gentiles, it was the Jews that needed to be won over. And so he begins by referring not to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, that may have been a sticking point in itself, but he begins by referring to the testimony of Peter the apostle to the Jews. And he refers to him, notice this, it's these little details that make the story live. He refers to him not as Peter, that is his Greek name, Petros, it means a stone, but by his Jewish name. Simon, and if I may point it out by the most Jewish version of his Jewish name, not even Simon, but Simeon. Simeon, he says, one of the fathers of one of the tribes of Israel. Brothers, listen to me, he says. Simeon, it says Simon here, but Simeon in the real version, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. That's what God is doing, taking from the Gentiles and from the Jews, a people for himself. And then James did what we have missed thus far in the debate. He quoted Scripture. The Scripture he quotes is from Amos, one of the minor prophets. It comes at the very end of that book, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. There are only a couple verses after that that speak of abundant blessing in the land in the last days. And the choice of these verses is significant. Amos has been a prophet of judgment and has been calling for repentance from the people. He's spoken of all the national sins. It's very, very heavy. You read the book, and you feel burdened by it because the sins of the people in the days of Amos were the same sins that our people are doing today. It describes America to a T. You get oppressed, as I say, as you read on in the book. But finally, you get to the end, and all of a sudden, it's as if the light breaks through the clouds and the storm passes... And the sun is shining, and these verses occur. After this, that is, after the judgment, after the scattering, after the conquest, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, a Jewish promise. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. Now notice, and all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I am sure that settles it. God has spoken. God has said he would do it. And now he's done it. And you have heard the testimony. And so he said, In my judgment, therefore, we must not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from things like this food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals and blood, but we must not tell them that they have to be circumcised. Now, I said at the beginning that I think this council has its strengths and weaknesses, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but when I come to the end, I sense that this is probably a weakness. It's certainly statesmanlike. Whether that's a weakness or not, I can't say. Commentators have pointed out that in the conclusion brought by James and in the letter which is then written to the Gentile churches, the one thing that is not mentioned is the point that began the whole controversy. James doesn't mention circumcision, and the letter to the Gentiles doesn't mention circumcision. All it says is we don't want to burden you, except we do recommend these things. Don't do this, these certain things. And the last part of the letter said you'll do well to avoid them. I guess I think it would have been better if I hadn't said that at all. And yet, I wasn't there, was I? Who am I to say that the council in Jerusalem erred? Certainly, it was statesmanlike, and maybe statesmanlike in the very best sense. Because, you see, later on, I mention it to show the difficulty. Here, they're told to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, but Paul is going to deal with that later on in the Gentile churches. They're going to say, can we eat Meat that has been sacrificed to idols. They sacrifice it, and then they sell it in the market. Can we buy that meat and eat it? Suppose we have friends in. Can we serve the meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And Paul is going to say, it really doesn't matter. He said, nobody is contaminated by meat. An idol is nothing. Of course you're free to eat it. But he said, if it's going to hurt somebody's conscience, don't do it. And yet here you see, this is what they're being told not to do. How are we to understand it? Well, probably we're to understand it in exactly the same way Paul was understanding it, though he stood on one side of it, that is, the Gentile side, and James was standing on the other, that is, the Jewish side. It was a matter of offending the brethren. If my eating food sacrificed to idols, Paul's going to say this in Corinthians, if if my eating food sacrificed to idols causes my brother to stumble, then I will eat no meat, says Paul. And in his own way, I think this is what... James is saying, he's saying, we have taken a stand here for the truth of the gospel. No Gentile is going to be compelled to be circumcised. No Gentile is going to have to take upon himself or take upon herself the entire law of Moses. But, James says, nevertheless, we do want harmony in the church. We don't want to drive out our Jewish brethren, and neither do we want to drive out our Gentile brethren, and therefore... It would be wise, and we recommend it, that the Gentiles do none of these things that are so offensive to a Jewish conscience. I guess that's hard to do. It's certainly hard to know the difference. How do you know the difference between a principle which involves the very essence of the gospel, which to yield is to betray Jesus Christ, and something which is merely a matter of practice on which one can very well yield in order to preserve the harmony of the church. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And it would seem, guided by the Holy Spirit, that that's what this first great council achieved. Certainly as Paul went back, and Barnabas with this letter, they went back saying, and we know They went back saying, because Paul tells us about it in Galatians, they went back saying the Gentiles were not compelled to be circumcised. Those who were the pillar apostles, even though they wavered early on in the discussion and wanted me to compromise, not fully understanding everything that was involved and how it would be understood, nevertheless, those pillar apostles were with me in the end, and they understood and defended that, which is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Everett Harrison has one of the best commentaries on Acts that I have been able to secure and I'm reading. And at this point in his commentary, he says that this great council in Jerusalem accomplished five things, and I end with them. Number one, the gospel of grace was reaffirmed. Number two, the unity of the church was preserved. Number three, the evangelism of the Gentiles was not hindered. Number four, the authenticity of the Gentile congregations was affirmed. And number five, the future of the church was secured. It would be a great thing in every age of the church, in every debate that comes upon us, those things could be said of us. Let us pray. Our Father, we've studied a chapter in which the giants of the church wrestled with a difficult issue and came out by your blessing on the side of the holy angels. Can we do the same? We would. We seek your power, your grace. Above all, we seek the courage to stand by truth and the love to know how to yield to the sensitivities of our brethren. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at Alliancenet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.